Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is out of Jonah, chapter 1. This is on page 916 in your pew Bibles. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up, up, up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and, he will not, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, and this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish. Three days and three nights. Thank you, Leonie. <clears throat> well, once again, happy Father's Day. Uh, Father's Day is uh, a special day for me. Yeah, I'm a father. And being a father is, is absolutely amazing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I'm not sure what other word to use. Of course, becoming a father, there is also... Uh, there is also something that you just have to come to terms with. When you become a father, you have to come to terms with the fact that life is completely out of control. When you become a father, you just have to come to terms with that's sort of the new normal. Uh, My wife and I, we have two children under the age of three, and so we just have to come to terms with the fact that life is completely out of control. That's the new normal. You know, you, you talk about when you enter into a new phase of life, what is the new normal? Well, that's the new normal. Normal is completely out of control. Oh, we count it a win. If we can walk across the living room uh, without slipping on Thomas the Train, Daniel Tiger, or some unidentified liquid on the floor, 
Uh, we count it a win uh, if when we travel, we go flying to visit my family in Colorado. We consider it a win if we make it there without one of our children throwing up on us. That's, that's considered a win. Uh, we can, you, know, you consider it a win if, if after picking up 100 Q-tips on the floor, uh, you, you count and they're all, they're all accounted for, which means that two of them are not stuck up your daughter's nose. Or you consider this a win, right? Because when you are a father, you just come to terms with the fact that life is completely out of control. But I actually think that, that fatherhood and the out-of-controlness that's there, I, I think it actually serves as a parable for life in general. I think it serves as a parable for life in general. I think that, that many of us, most of us, have this sense that, that life is, is increasingly getting out of control. I think many of us would even say that just about our world in general. We live in a world where it, it just, it just, there's this sense that things are just more and more out of control. Right, we, we live in a world where the kind of tragedy that happened in Charleston recently, that, that kind of thing can happen. When we live in a, in a world where organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda can, can thrive, when we live in a world where just, just general economic uncertainty seems to be sort of the name of the game. And, and, I, and I think that for many of us, it's, you know, the, the out-of-controlness, it's not just out there. Right? It, it's right here. We, 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 we kind of feel it encroaching upon our own lives, that the economic uncertainty isn't just something for economists to deal with. It's something that, that perhaps you're dealing with, and, and you're dealing it in a way that you didn't expect to be dealing with it. Maybe you graduated from college thinking you'd have the same opportunities that others have had in different uh, generations, and, and you're actually finding that maybe that isn't going to be the case. You're just not really sure that there's some uncertainty there. Maybe you're, you've, you've been in the same job for 20, 25 years and, and you thought you were going to be able to retire there, but there's some uncertainty there. Maybe you've even been let go, and, and this was not something that you had actually ever considered. It just seems like life is out of control. And then the out-of-controlness of our finances and, and whatnot, then it, that starts to encroach in on family life, right? So, so then it, it's not just your job and your bank account. Now it's your marriage, maybe. How many of you feel like your marriage is just spiraling out of control? And then you look even deeper into your own life, and you, you look into your own heart, and, and you look at, you recognize that maybe there are even some patterns, some behaviors in your life, some things that are not, not good, that are, are beginning to spiral out of control. I think there is this general sense that, that, that life is out of control, and, and if that's the case, then actually the time in which we live is not all that different than the time in which the people of Israel lived when we come across the story of Jonah. It's not all that different than the way things were, particularly in the centuries that followed the time in which we read about Jonah. We find that that was a period when life seemed completely out of control. And so the first thing that emerges then in in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, the message which it communicated to, to them living 2,700 years ago, and the same message which it communicates to us today, is that God is completely in control. God is completely in control. Even when it seems like things are completely out of control, God is completely in control. What just what leaps off the page over and over again in this, this opening scene is God's complete sovereignty over everything. 
We see God's complete sovereignty over everything in the way in which Jonah tries to get out of the realm of God's control. He thinks, well, maybe I can get away from where God has control, right? So, so uh, God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he goes to Tarshish. Okay, if here's Nineveh, Tarshish isn't like here or here or here. It's over here. It's like God saying, I want you to go to London, and you go to L.A. instead. It's like God saying, I want you to go left, and you go right instead. You see, he's just trying to get out of the realm of God's control. And, of course, what he finds is that there's simply nowhere he can go. There's nowhere he can go because everything ultimately is under God's sovereign control. And, and he, you know, he finally admits this. He realizes this in verse 9 when the sailors ask him uh, you know, who he is. He says, I am a Hebrew I, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea. Now he's admitting, you know, God's in control of everything, because I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but when you think about the surface of the earth, there's really just two things. There's land and there's sea. Right? You know, when, when you travel somewhere and, and the, you're flying and they go through the whole safety check and they, you know, they tell you in the event of cabin pressure, loss, this is what you do, and they tell you all this stuff. And then what do they say? There's that one point where they say, in the event of a water landing... And why do they do that? Well, they're just trying to cover all their bases. They're like, look, okay, we've explained to you. If we land on the land, this is what you do. If we land on the water, that's what we do. Because that's we've covered it. Because guess what? If you crash, you're either going to crash on the land or you're going to crash on the sea. There's nowhere else. So it's a way of saying, yeah, if he's the Lord of the land and the sea, it means he is in control. He has sovereign control over everything. God is completely in control. He's, he, he can take control over the smallest details. If he wants to switch this, manipulate this, work through this, he can work through, an, he can work through the casting of lots. This is sort of like an ancient uh, you know, rolling the dice. If he wants to take control of that, he can take control of that. Uh, if he wants to control when a fish opens its mouth, he has complete control over everything. Another way of saying that is that God's will cannot be stopped. God's will, God's purposes, God's plan cannot be stopped. Have you ever tried to stop something unstoppable? Have you ever tried to stop something unstoppable? I've had a few times in my life when I was unstoppable. I've had a few times playing tennis, I was unstoppable. A few times playing basketball, I was unstoppable. In fact, for the longest time, I thought that when it came to ultimate frisbee, I was completely unstoppable. And then it dawned on me that the only time I ever play ultimate frisbee is when I was a counselor at this camp of elementary school kids. And I absolutely dominated them. I was completely unstoppable. There was one time in my life when I really, genuinely, authentically was unstoppable. It was July 4th, 2012. And my wife was in labor. Uh, We were at home, and, uh, well, let's just say things went a little bit faster than we thought they were going to go. And I remember this moment about 4 in the morning when our, our wonderful friend Gail, our doula Gail, she looks at me, and she just very seriously, uh, as calm as she could be, but seriously, she says, she says, Kevin, you need to start the car right now, and you need to go as fast as you can, and if Laura starts screaming like she's going to push in the backseat of the car, you're going to have to pull over, and we're going to deliver the baby in the car. 
right, let me tell you something. If, if you, those of you who aren't fathers, let me just kind of give you uh, being a good dad 101. Good dad 101 is get your wife to the hospital in time for her to give birth to the baby. I mean, you got just 101. Like, if you can just start there, you've at least accomplished something, right? So I knew, I'm like, I am, I am unstoppable. Nothing could stop me. Me and my 2004 blue Honda Civic LX, we were absolutely unstoppable. Red lights, uh, cars in our lane. Uh, it normally takes 15 minutes to get to Valley Hospital. I made it in like seven minutes. You ever try to stop something unstoppable? What this first chapter of Jonah is telling us is that God's will, God's purposes, God's plan is completely unstoppable. And, and this, this whole first chapter is, it's a comical story about, about these futile attempts to stop the will of God. Jonah's like, I'll try to go to the ocean. The sailors are like, let's just throw cargo overboard. That'll do it. That'll, that'll stop him. You know, Jonah, notice this. Jonah, even he, he so badly wants to stop the will of God, he's actually willing to kill himself for it. You notice this because... It's interesting, you know, there's kind of debates at this point when, when Jonah says, okay, throw me into the sea, it's my fault. Is he really repentant at this point? Because one of the things that you notice is that it's not like he ever prays. The pagan captain comes up to him and says, pray to your God, and Jonah doesn't do it. I mean, you've got to be in pretty serious rebellion if when a non-Christian comes to you and asks you to pray and you don't, I mean, don't we? I mean, even if you're feeling kind of distant from God, if your non-Christian friend comes to you and asks you to pray, you pray, don't you? Well, Jonah's in such rebellion, he doesn't even pray when this pagan sailor comes. And so what does he do? He's so against the will of God that he's actually even willing to kill himself. And you can just sort of imagine, you know, Jonah sinking to the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) I got you. I stopped you. And God's like, well, this should be fun. What should I do? I could send another boat. No, that's boring. I know, I could like make the waters recede. I could make the waters recede, and then when he just, he's just going to land you know, on dry land. Nah, I've been there, done that. What should I? Hey, wait a minute. Has anybody seen that fish? Where'd that fish go? Right? I mean, God is just like, you can't stop me. God's will. God's purposes, God's plan are absolutely unstoppable. The question is, well, what is God's will? What is God's unstoppable plan that emerges from the book of Jonah? And here's what we discover, is that God's unstoppable will is his unstoppable desire to pour out compassion on the people of Nineveh. That's his will, is to absolutely pour out compassion on the people of Nineveh. Now, you might not think that reading the first chapter. In fact, you might come to the other conclusion based on verse 2, right? What does he say to Jonah? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. You might think that in this passage, you know, that God's about to get Old Testament on the people of Nineveh. You know what I mean? He's about to get Old Testament on it, which would make sense. This is in the Old Testament. Does he expect God to get Old Testament on people in the Old Testament? Right? But, but here's the thing. See, Jonah realizes the reason why he rebels against God is because he actually knows the character of God. 
He knows the character of the God of the Bible. He knows the character of the God of the Old Testament. And what he actually knows is at the very heart of the God, even the God of the Old Testament, is that he does not want to get Old Testament on anyone. That's not his desire. That's not his will. Ezekiel 18.23, again, in the Old Testament, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God's heart is to pour out compassion. Of course, this is what we discover. As you you go through the Bible, you you just read the stories. Going back to the book of Exodus, and perhaps the most famous story, and that whole story is about God's desire and plan to pour out compassion on his people. That's what the whole story of the Exodus is about, right? The people of Israel are are in Egypt, and they've been... Uh, they're in being forced into hard labor, servant labor, and they cry out to God, and God pours out compassion, and He raises up, He raises up Moses, and and what happens? You know, Pharaoh tries to stop God from pouring out His compassion on His people. What does Pharaoh discover? He discovers that God's compassion for His people is absolutely unstoppable. In the David and Goliath, okay, David and Goliath, another story about God pouring out his unstoppable compassion on the people of God. There they are, uh, in it with the Philistines, the Philistines uh, stronger, probably more advanced technologically, and, and, and what happens? Well, they, the Philistines, uh, they send Goliath, this massive warrior, to challenge the Israelites, and of course, what, is, what does God do? He pours out compassion on his people, and Goliath discovers at the sling of David that God's passion or compassion for his people is absolutely unstoppable. In fact, even here in the the first chapter of Jonah, oddly enough, we, we see God's compassion for Jonah, right? It even seems, it even teases at the point that that even our disobedience cannot stop God's compassion for. We see throughout the Bible that God's compassion for his people is absolutely unstoppable. And of course, nowhere does that come to fruition. Nowhere does that come to a greater climax, of course, than in Jesus himself. The heart of the gospel is that in Jesus we discover that nothing in this world, in fact, nothing in this world or in any other world, uh, nothing can stop God from pouring out his compassion on his people, that nothing can stop that not even sin or sickness or death, you know, the whole point of Jesus' resurrection is that if he has conquered death, there's, there's, nothing else to, there's nothing else that could possibly stop him other than that. The heart of the gospel, which the book of Jonah points us to, is that no matter what your situation is, no matter how out of control your life seems. Again, maybe you're at a place in your life where things feel out of control. Maybe your marriage is spiraling out of control. Maybe your finances are out of control. Maybe some of your own patterns and behaviors are out of control. And, and, and you, you, kind of, you just kind of get to that point of just helplessness. The heart of the gospel is that if we will just turn to God, if we will just turn to him no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, If we turn to him, nothing, nothing can stop the compassion of God. We we sang that song, Our God. If if God is for us, then who can ever stop us? 
Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the heart of the gospel, that there is absolutely nothing that can stop God's compassion. Of course, that's what the book of Jonah is about, right? It's a story about how God's compassion for his people is absolutely unstoppable. Right? That's that's what the story of Jonah is about, right? Well, no. Not exactly. You see, this is where the book of Jonah is very interesting. This is where the book of Jonah is not the same as the story of the Exodus, the story of David and Goliath. Because in the story of the Exodus, well, it's about how nothing in this world can stop God's compassion from reaching his people. Pharaoh, representing the world, it's about how nothing in this world can stop God's compassion from reaching his people. Pharaoh learns this. The story of David and Goliath, it's a story about nothing in this world, not even giants from Philistine, Nothing in this world can stop God's compassion from reaching his people. But that's not actually what the story of Jonah is about. The book of Jonah isn't about, primarily, about how nothing in this world can stop God's compassion from reaching his people. You know what it's about? It's about how even God's people cannot stop God's compassion from reaching the world. That's what the book of Jonah is about. It's about how God's people can't stop God's compassion from reaching the world. You see, the book of Jonah isn't primarily written to encourage the people of Israel that that God's going to take care of them, God's going to protect them from their enemies. No, he's actually saying, you know what, I want to pour out compassion on the world, and if you don't want to, I'm going to be able to do it whether you want to or not, because you can't stop me. The book of Jonah is, is about how not even God's people can stop God's compassion from reaching the world. It, the story of the book of Jonah, again, the people of Israel, they had come to think that what it means to be the people of God is simply to be the ones who receive God's compassion over and against everybody else, how God is going to deliver them from their enemies. And what they had failed to realize is what it means to be the people of God, to be called by the people of God, is not simply to be the receivers of God's compassion, but to be the ones through whom God brings compassion into this world brings compassion to our enemies and our neighbors, that what it means to be the people of God is to love our neighbor. So at this point, you're probably all feeling duped. Because you're like, wait a minute, Kevin, I thought we were done with the Love Your Neighbor series. Right? Didn't, didn't you finish that? Are we finished with that? I was waiting for, okay, I get it, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Finally, we're finished. The problem is, is that if, if we keep going through the Bible, we're just going to keep hitting this. Because I guess Jesus wasn't lying when he said that all of the law and the prophets, the prophets, is summed up in this one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. So God's telling the people of God, you, you can't stop my compassion from reaching this world, even if you try. And so the challenge which the book of Jonah brought to the people in Jonah's day, and the challenge which the book of Jonah brings to us today, 
is simply this. In what ways are we, as professed members of the people of God, in what ways are we actually hindering the compassion of God from reaching the world? In what ways are we, as the people of God, this is a question which is being raised, in which ways are we actually hindering the compassion of God from reaching the world? And I've been reflecting upon this, and I want to just highlight four ways in which I think that we hinder reaching people with the compassion of God. And these are four things that I think come from the book of Jonah, from, uh, from the book of Jonah, from Scripture in its entirety, and honestly just from reflections on my own heart. They're pretty basic. The first way in which we hinder God's calling for us to pour out compassion on our neighbors is simply selfishness. We just don't want to. We just don't, we just don't want to. They're, they're, you know, there's, a, there's a limit. We put a limit. We, the reality is we just, we're more concerned about ourselves. We're more concerned about what we want, that, that our entire lives are geared, our career, our, 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 even with our families, everything alternates about us. The reason we're not able to, to pour out compassion on, on, on others, to give ourselves to that, is because we just don't want to. I, I'm on, I reflect on my own heart. I realize this. It's like, how much do I really want to do this? Of course, closely related to this, a second way in which we hinder being used by God to pour out compassion on others is just busyness. It's just busy. We're just, we're just busy. We, we just fill our schedules with so much uh, that, that, you know, we, we, just, we just don't have time. We don't have the resources, right? We're, we're just busy. We're distracted, you know? And, and, and Jesus, there's a, a story where two men come to Jesus, and, and they say, I, I, we want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, let's come. And one of them says, well, but first I need to go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And another guy comes and says, I, I, I want to follow you as well. And she says, okay, come, come follow me. And and, and he says, well, I need to go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks backwards is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus really saying you shouldn't make funeral arrangements for your parents? Is he really saying you shouldn't say goodbye? No, no, it's Jesus using his classic hyperbole, exaggerating the point to make a point. And it's simply this. He's just aware of the fact that we're just so distracted. By so many things, we're just caught up in, in, in the busyness of life, and that hinders us from being able to pour out compassion on our neighbors. We're selfish, we're busy. Thirdly, a sense of superiority hinders us from being able to pour out compassion on people. But that was certainly the case with the people of Israel. This time, that, that was certainly the case. They, they had this sense of, for, for them, they had this sense of, well, we're the people of God. You know, we're, we're a notch above everybody else. So they kind of had this, this sense of superiority. And, and I think that, though it may not take exactly the same shape today, I think we all have to acknowledge that sometimes we can have this attitude of superiority that you know, says, I'm not going to help because, I, you know, I just don't think they really deserve it. They don't really deserve, they don't deserve my compassion. Right? They, you know, I, I, 
it's a waste of my time. If I, if I pour in to this situation, you know, my time is valuable. I've got big, important things to do. And, and this, I, you know, they're just not worth it. We might not say that consciously, but subconsciously, that's what we're feeling. It's this sense of superiority. And, and we can have a sense of superiority about particular individuals. We can have a sense of superiority uh, towards entire people groups. My prejudice, even racism. I think it's important for us to always check our hearts and say, is there, do I have a prejudice towards perhaps even an, an entire people group? What, do I have a prejudice against old people? Do I have a prejudice against young people? Do I have a prejudice uh, against different ethnic groups? I, I, because superiority is one of these things that can hinder us from, from really showing compassion. And, and the book of Jonah challenges us to really look into our hearts and ask that question. The fourth way in which we hinder God from pouring out compassion on the world is fear. It's fear. We're afraid to do it. We're afraid. We're afraid that maybe if we pour out compassion on them, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? If I pour out compassion on them, are they not going to take advantage of me? And it's actually in that context that the book of Jonah is all the more shocking. Because the people of Israel living at the time of Jonah in subsequent centuries, they had every reason to fear loving the people God had called them to fear. We read in 2 Kings that Jonah lived somewhere in the middle of the 8th century. And the middle of the 8th century for the people of Israel was actually sort of you might say the last golden age. I mean, it wasn't really the golden age because the kingdom had already been divided into two. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But this was sort of the last period of of relative prosperity, the middle of the 8th century. That's when we read about Jonah in 2 Kings. Pretty, Pretty decent times. But within 30 years, everything would completely fall apart. Within 30 years, the Assyrian Empire would march into northern Israel. They would completely conquer the land. Uh, They would deport about 30,000 Israelites to Assyria. They would completely take over, and the northern kingdom would would never rise again. And do you know what the capital of the Assyrian Empire was? Nineveh. There's debates about whether or not it was the capital in the time of Jonah, but it certainly became the capital, and it was a major city throughout the time of the Assyrian Empire. So you need to understand, for the people of Israel, for whom this story became a part of their way of life and a part of the way of worship in the subsequent centuries, the 7th century, 6th century, what they're doing is they're reading a story about how God had called one of their prophets to go and show compassion on the very people who 30 years later would come and completely annihilate their country. To put put it in in, in contemporary terms, and it's always risky to draw these kinds of parallels, but to just kind of put it in contemporary terms, it would be a little bit like, in the wake of World War II, a, a story emerged within Europe, became very popular within 
Europe about how God called a French citizen or a Polish Jew to go to Nazi Germany prior to World War II and to pour out compassion on the Nazis. It would be a little bit like a story in America today. A story in America today gaining popularity and it's a story about how God called an American citizen to go to Afghanistan in the years prior to 9-11 and to pour out compassion on Al-Qaeda. You, you, you see what this is saying? This is the radical call which God's people are called to, is to pour out on... We're afraid. What if they take advantage of us? Yes, that is exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened, and that's exactly when this story began to rise and became popular within the people of Israel. You see, God is calling us to love and have compassion on this world with absolutely no limits. To not be hindered by our selfishness, to not be hindered by our busyness, to not be hindered by our sense of superiority, to not be hindered by our fear. Of course, again, the question is why? Why should we do this? You know the answer. Because at the heart of the gospel is that this is exactly what God has done for us. Why should we do this? Because Jonah spent three days in the heart of a fish. Jesus spent three days in the heart of the earth. The heart of the gospel is that our God himself, in the person of Jesus, he laid down his selfishness. He laid down his busyness. I'm sure God had plenty of important things to do that he could have done. He laid down his busyness. He laid down his sense of superiority. He laid down the glory of heaven. He humbled himself and he became a servant, and he laid down fear that he entered into death and he took upon the sin of this world. You see, we we don't pour out compassion on people as a way to get God to show us compassion. We pour out compassion on people because God has already done this for us. The God's compassion is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped. Even if we give our lives for others, That's not going to separate us from God's compassion. This is the heart of the gospel. And so what motivates us to do this is the realization that that actually giving your life sacrificially for others is actually what leads to life. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You know, that's not just a timeless proverb. That's not just a timeless truth that is just true with reality to how the world is. No, the timeless truth with regards to how the world really is, is survival of the fittest. It's not a timeless truth. The reason that it is true is because Jesus died and rose from the grave. And when we put our hope and we put our faith in that, we begin to realize that we operate under completely different principles than this world works by. And we operate by the principle that actually the greatest path to joy is by sacrificially giving ourselves for others because we see in the resurrection of Jesus what that actually leads to. I said last week that I feel like our church is in a really amazing season. 
where God is doing a good work in this church. So this is, this is a season where, where God is, is sending us this wave. And I think we now have a greater clarity on what that wave is. That wave is the unstoppable compassion of God for the world. And here's what we need to realize. Is that God no more needs you or me or this church to pour out compassion on this world. He no more needs it than a wave needs a surfer to get to the shore. The wave, it doesn't need, the the surfer, whether he gets on or not, isn't going to stop it. You see, that's the message. That's what he's saying to the people of Israel. He said, you can't stop me from my compassion getting to this world. And that's the same message that that comes to us. You see, you you can try to hinder it. You can try to do it. But ultimately, I'm going to pour out compassion on whom I want to pour out compassion Really, the question is, do you want to be a part of it? God isn't like, Jonah, I need you. Oh, my gosh, Jonah, if you don't go, what am I going to do? I mean, he's, he's showing him compassion by continually going after him. God could easily be like, okay, I'll, I'll get Bob. Bob's ready to go. You see, nothing's going to stop God's compassion from reaching this world, even God's people. So the question is, do we want to ride the wave? Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for your unstoppable compassion. God, I pray we would be convicted. I pray we would feel the weight of our own selfishness, busyness, superiority, and fear. I, feel, I pray that we would, we would feel the weight of that. But that in that, we would not be condemned. Because we would see that our selfishness, our busyness, our superiority, and our fear cannot stop God's compassion from reaching us. Pray that we would be broken by that reality. And that in that we would give ourselves, give our lives. God, help us this week and in the coming months as a church and as individuals to really assess practically ways in which we hinder your compassion. And in so doing, are not just really just hurting ourselves, that life is found in giving ourselves for you and for this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.